We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 here in just a minute, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, if you've been living in a, in a cave, you might not have realized that we had a new pope elected uh, or selected back in 2013. And soon after he was selected as the head of the Catholic Church, he, he immediately began to, to ruffle some feathers. Uh, and his offense was that he washed the feet of about a dozen prisoners, including some young women, at a detention center in Rome. He poured water over their feet, and he dried them with a towel, and even kissed them. Now, the ceremony is actually a traditional ceremony uh, that is trying to imitate Christ's washing of the disciples' feet. But what Francis did that kind of ruffled the feathers. He broke with tradition by including women. Even one of them was a, was a young Muslim woman. And traditionally, they've all been men. Now, this scandalous act of his was followed by other outlandish behaviors. Like, you might have heard this, he paid for his own hotel room. And he also uh, decided he wouldn't live in the luxury apartments at the Vatican, but he would, he would live in some more simple apartments. Now, to me, what it's truly shocking is that this is shocking to anybody, now, especially for a guy who is attempting to uh, follow in the footsteps of Jesus to think that this is strange behavior. Maybe this is perhaps indicative of a greater ignorance about Jesus and who he was. You see, Jesus himself didn't sit well with the religious establishment, that he challenged traditions and he often offended their sensibilities. No more so than when he associated with people of all kinds. So you might remember the scene and the stink that he caused when he went over to the house of the tax collector Levi, or better known as, as Matthew. After his call to be a disciple, Levi invites Jesus over to have a meal. And he's of course, has all of his cronies there, his friends, his fellow tax collectors and other sinners. And the Pharisees are very upset. They're not at all happy with Jesus. And they can't understand what this man is thinking because anybody who's religious wouldn't associate with these sorts of folks and Jesus famously replies it is not those who are well who need a physician but those who are sick I've come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance in fact Jesus made a habit of associating with all the wrong kinds of people so much so that even John the Baptist found himself slightly confused. You see, John the Baptist had this image that when Messiah came, he would come with winnowing fork in his hand, that he would begin to separate out people and, and make judgments, that there would be the wheat and the chaff, there would be sinners and saints. But as he looks at Jesus, he's constantly with the sinners, showing them love and acceptance. So John sends two of his disciples to ask this interesting question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect another? So Jesus replies by describing his ministry, a ministry in which the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and the, and the poor preach good news. A ministry that is devoted to the most marginal of people. And he ends his response to John with this very curious statement. Don't miss it in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And in fact, this verb can actually be translated even maybe a more potent way as blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. For you see, Jesus' ministry was a scandal to many. 
And it's during, sometime during this early part of his ministry, before Jesus has totally been written off by the Pharisees, that he receives an invitation to dinner. An invitation to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. Now, this isn't any ordinary meal. We know that because of the posture that is described. They're not sitting down, but they are reclining. This is a formal banquet. So we should therefore picture a meal in what was called the formal dining room of the day, the triclinium. And this would be typically three very large couches arranged in a U-shape with people leaning on their left elbow and eating with their right hand. So this is a formal banquet situation. And into this scene, the most unexpected of guests arrives. In reality, she is no guest at all. She's not invited, but she just shows up there. And she's described as someone whom the whole town knows to be a sinner. In fact, even in our Bibles, you might recognize that the heading for this particular passage is the sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet. But it never tells us what her sin is. It doesn't describe what she has done, but it does make clear that everybody knows. Now, the most popular suggestion is that she's a prostitute because that is, of course, a very public sin indeed. But it could be that she's an adulteress, or it could be that there is something else that she has done. Whatever it was, everybody knows, and she's been labeled, and she herself feels the guilt for her actions. So she comes with this alabaster jar of perfume, with apparently the intention of anointing Jesus. However, she's presented with this obstacle because when she gets there, uh, Jesus is already reclining. And so that's why it's important for us to picture the scene in a formal dining room because otherwise you get these kind of rather odd images uh, as in some of the paintings. Go to the, the one before that, please. Uh, my favorite is the lower right where the, the woman is about to bump her head on the underside of the table because she's got to kind of get underneath there to, to wash his feet. So that's what they were trying to figure out based on how they dined when they painted these pictures. And maybe you as well. You're think, thinking of your dining room. But if you picture an ancient dining room, it makes a whole lot more sense that Jesus is reclining and his feet are sticking out behind him so we get a better image of what is going on here. So here she comes. Undeterred, she stands behind him at his feet crying. We have as yet no idea why she's here or what she wants or why she's crying. But there she is weeping over Jesus' feet and attempting to dry them with her hair. And then, as if overcome by emotion, because I think only that would explain why she does this, she kisses his feet, and she begins to pour perfume on them. And none of this looks pre-planned. It looks as if, you know, she came with one intention, and all of a sudden, emotion just takes over. So, as she does this, we have to think through this story, because it might be a familiar story to us, and, and that's the problem, is our familiarity. As we look at this story, and we think through it, we know and are familiar with it, and the strangeness of it, perhaps, is lost on us. But I would ask you to think back. When was the last time that you had a dinner party, and someone shows up uninvited, in fact, someone you never would have invited, and they come in, and rather than sitting down at a chair, they start messing with one of your guest's feet, and that guest allows it? That would be a rather strange scene. And if you have had that happen, please don't admit it to anyone. 
But you do have to wonder as you think about this, uh, what does Jesus do during this moment? I mean, what is appropriate table etiquette when someone does this to you? Do you go on eating or does everything just stop? I mean, how do you address someone messing with your feet while you're trying to have a meal? Yet oddly enough, no one seems to do anything. Even the host, Simon, doesn't take any action. He is highly offended by the whole scene, but particularly by Jesus more than anything else. In fact, the, the scripture tells us he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, the title of prophet had actually been recently applied to Jesus just a little bit earlier in the chapter in the town of Nain after he had raised uh, a widow's son back from the dead. The people were astonished and they marveled at this uh, miracle and they said, hey, a great prophet has arisen among us. Some even suggest that this meal perhaps is in the town of Nain because there's no other geographical movement since that story. But nevertheless, the title is going around as people try and figure out who this new teacher is, this rabbi. Is he just a rabbi? But he's doing these miracles. Maybe he's a prophet. And so the prophet title is, is being bandied about. But Simon has none of it. The phrase, if this man were a prophet, is a special construction in Greek. We call it contrary to fact, meaning it indicates, by the way it's worded, that the speaker does not believe the if clause to be true at all. Simon is basically saying, if this man were a prophet, but I don't believe it for a minute. And here's why. A prophet would know what kind of woman she is and would not allow him to be touching him, would not allow her to do this to him. So either Jesus doesn't know or he doesn't care, and for Simon, either one of those disqualifies him from being a prophet. And it's at this point in the story that we need to remember that Simon is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, of course, were a most scrupulous of people trying to observe the law in order to demonstrate their devotion to God. One of their strategies appeared to be that they would separate themselves from sinners, from the unclean, the unwashed, anybody who could perhaps taint them or stain them or cause them to be unclean. And, and those who demonstrated no concern for the law, of course, were not to be tolerated. And here, before him, in his very own dining room, is a sinner. And everyone knows it. Everyone, that is, except this so-called prophet, Jesus. He doesn't seem to be aware. But Jesus truly is a prophet. And he knows the very thoughts that are running around in Simon's head. So he tells a parable, a parable of two debtors, one who owed a moneylender about a year's, year and a half worth of wages and another who owed about a month and a half worth of wages. Neither amount is insignificant and neither of the debtors could pay. So the moneylender forgave both. A very generous act, of course. Jesus then asks Simon, who do you think would be more grateful? And he replies correctly, well, I think the one with the larger debt. And it is then that Jesus asks a very intriguing question. He turns to Simon and he says, Do you see this woman? Jesus will go on to chronicle all the loving acts that she has done and, and make a point out of this, but we can't rush over this question. 
do you see this woman? Do you really see her? Can you possibly imagine what she's been through? Do you know what it has taken for her to come here like this? Or even why she's here? Do you see this woman, or do you merely see the label that you've put on her? In Simon's eyes, she's a sinner. That defines her, and that allows him to dismiss her and not take her seriously. And this is, the one, this is one of the fundamental differences between Jesus and the religious people of his day. Jesus saw people where they sought to label friend or enemy, sinner or saint, righteous or unrighteous, worthy or unworthy. Jesus saw people as creations of God. He saw them in need of healing. Where others saw them as lost and hopeless, Jesus saw people as worth finding as worth saving, prostitutes and tax collectors, liars and thugs, and a myriad of other folks of all kinds of sins. And I think it's a question that we must wrestle with as well. Do we see people, or do we see merely the labels that we place on them? You see, we use labels to order our world, to make it manageable, to to make it constructive. But when you place labels on people, it tends to warp our perception. It tends to reduce and oversimplify, to, to take these people that are complex and nuanced and make them simply a label, as if that label describes who they are, the totality of who they are. Soren Kierkegaard once said, Once you label me, you negate me. Labels seem to be a part of the human condition. You know, we get started at this very young age with what we might call innocent name-calling. You might remember creative monikers from an early age, things like stinky pants or poopy head or something like that. Yes, those were earliest labels. But then we we become more sophisticated, and and teens learn how to do this. Teens learn how to turn words into barbs. And sometimes they'll throw labels around like nerd, or geek, or freak, tramp, or slut, or skank, and others that are a bit harsher. But even as adults, we tend to label people. We, we tend to think of them in a way that reduces them from the complexity and rich diversity that are individuals. To see only their label and no longer to see them truly as people. Especially groups that we don't like, or we don't trust, or we don't think so highly of, those that we fear. It becomes a world populated by the illegal immigrant who has stolen my job. The homeless man who bothers me as I try to walk down the street. Or the trailer trash who's trying to move in too close to my neighborhood. Or that gay man at work who makes me uncomfortable. We brand people with their sins and their mistakes from their past. And and they become merely the alcoholic or the drug addict or the drunk. She's the divorced woman. He's the adulterer. She's the single mom who had a child out of wedlock. Sometimes we just use language like those people and them. 
It doesn't matter what the label, it's a way of thinking about people to see them as different, as other, as not us, as to dismiss them as somehow of less value in God's eyes, as less a concern to God than we are. People to be whispered about, but not to be associated with. But Jesus' ministry is characterized by seeing those very people, the people on the margins, as beloved of God, and those who have lost their way as, as those who are in need of a special measure of love. And his harshest criticism is for those who trust too much in their own righteousness and think too highly of themselves. In the end, we're all just sinners in need of mercy and grace. So Jesus asked Simon... Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? After rehearsing all of her acts of loving kindness, which she's just bestowed, he goes on to say, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who forgives little loves little. So now we begin to see why the woman is here. There is obviously a gap in the story. The woman has heard about Jesus. Even more likely, she has heard him directly. She's not simply a woman with a foot fetish who enters random homes and begins to fondle people's feet. She's a sinner who has heard the call of Jesus, has heard his message. She's recognized the grace and mercy that his ministry embodies. She sees Jesus as an opportunity to find something, to have something that perhaps she hasn't had for a long time. Forgiveness. It is here that we have to be careful. You see, some translations I think are misleading. The woman has not come seeking forgiveness. See, some interpreters perceive this as if her actions are a profound act of contrition. As if the woman is desperately seeking the grace of God. And some translations, like the one I just read, would lead you to think that that is correct. Her sins are forgiven because she loved much. But this would be a strange theology in the Gospels, that, that you could uh, love a certain amount and then all of a sudden God will give in and he'll, he'll forgive you because of that, that grace could be earned. But if you look back at the parable that Jesus told, remember that? The debt is forgiven first... And then the response of gratitude and love comes. That's in the parable. And so when we look at this story, we see that love is the response to debt forgiven. And the woman is here in gratitude. Perhaps she has already encountered Jesus and he spoke a word of forgiveness and this is the second act. Or perhaps she just simply recognized the forgiveness that he offers. She's heard other stories of others forgiven. We're not exactly sure what happened. There's a gap in the story. But she's here because of her profound gratitude for the forgiveness of sins that Jesus represents. So verse 47 would be better translated this way. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. We know her sins are forgiven because look at what she's doing. 
The woman's actions are a sign of the tremendous change that has been wrought in her life. Forgiveness has freed her from the prison which she had been living in for so long. It's a story that's repeated numerous times in the gospel. You might remember the story of Zacchaeus. As soon as Jesus calls him down from the tree, he says immediately, I'm going to give half my stuff away. And you're like, what just happened? And then we realize, as the story concludes, he has achieved salvation. And it's because of that that he responds in gratitude. Now, we know ourselves, I think, intimately, the power of guilt and shame to cripple us. They have the power to imprison us, to define us, to steal our future. When we live with sin for so long, sometimes we begin to believe that's just who I am. For some, it might be a very public struggle with drugs or alcohol or something else that everybody knows, and they define us that way. But for others, perhaps it's a very private struggle, a sin that you've been dealing with for a long, long time, and no one else knows. But you do, and you're ashamed by it. Both types can be a very deep and dark prison. Yet this story illustrates the very heart of the good news that we have in Jesus. When we think about the message that we as a church have to offer the world, it's not primarily about some future home by and by. No, it is great news that we proclaim about freedom here and now. Jesus offers us the opportunity for a do-over. And who doesn't want that? To live not beholden to our past with our mistakes that we've made, but to begin again as if they'd never happened. This is where that language of a born again comes in, right? That we have the chance to become like a newborn babe, fresh and clean, as if we've never done any of those things. That all the bad decisions, all the wrong turns, never happened. Did you cheat on your spouse? There's forgiveness. Did you secretly get an abortion? As a pregnant teen, there's grace. Did you hurt someone or cause them pain or destroy a relationship or cheat or lie or scheme to get ahead? Did you do any of those things? That doesn't have to be the end of the story, Jesus says. That doesn't have to define you. That isn't who you are. Jesus allows us freedom from the labels that people have placed on us and the labels we have placed on ourselves. He gives us new labels and new identities. We are saved. We're redeemed. We're children of God. We're sons and daughters of the King. That's the label that he wants us to hear. Never underestimate the power of forgiveness. It's like opening a window on a long closed room in your house. It breathes new life into us. And allows us to become what God always intended that we should be. As a side note, I think it's also important for us to recognize that we have that power ourselves. We have the power to forgive others who have sinned against us. And that we have that power to help them start anew. To feel grace and freedom and to be released from their guilt and shame. No matter what they've done to us. And Jesus calls us to do that as well. Yet there's one more part of this story we, we can't ignore as it finishes up. Notice this. 
see the woman one more time, slipping into the room with the boldness grace has given her. She wants to do something for Jesus to show her gratitude, and she's overcome with emotion, and she's wetting his feet with her tears, and she's drying them with her hair, and she's kissing them, and she's anointing them with perfume, and Jesus says that these actions are an expression of love, love motivated by what has happened to her, what has been done for her because of the forgiveness. And so this is exceedingly important that we recognize this order. God's grace always comes first, and then our response. It's a pattern written boldly across the pages of Scripture that we cannot miss. For too many people, the order has been reversed, that they try and try and try to earn God's love, to be worthy, to prove that they, they should be with Him, obeying the law, piling, stockpiling righteous acts, doing enough good deeds, trying to deserve it. But the story has never been such. Even in the Old Testament, we see a story in which God rescues the Israelites, brings them out of bondage, and then He gives them the law as the appropriate response for them to live as God's people. We live because of, not in order to. Because we're saved, not in order to be saved. Because God has forgiven us, not in order to be forgiven. And I think that most people in this room know that intellectually. We've been over this numerous times and we've been freed by grace. But sometimes our grasp on this message slips. And we forget our new identity. We begin to live according to our old labels, not our new. And we find ourselves once again like a hamster on the wheel, running as fast as we can, trying to earn God's grace. And it is during these times that we're robbed of our joy. So, let me ask you one more time. Do you see this woman? She recognized what Jesus had to offer, that she too, one whom the whole town had labeled as sinner, that she could be redeemed, could be made new, could be made spotless. And grace overwhelmed her, and she poured forth acts of love. And Jesus then utters at the very end of the story the comforting message which she had seen and heard in his ministry, which he now wants her to hear very personally herself. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the good news that we offer the world, that anyone and everyone can change, that we are not bound by our past. But let me leave you with this one final thought. I think to get that message out, maybe, just maybe, we need to be a bit more scandalous that perhaps following in the footsteps of Jesus might involve offending religious sensibilities. And then as we look beyond who people are, we begin to see who they might become.